0: From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is FinTech Insider 2019 Roundup. This week, we bring you that time RBS hid NatWest data breach from their customers and all hell broke loose, Monto's roller coaster of a year is coming to an end, and those pretty weird CEO sneakers. Definitely still want some, though. All this and much, much more on today's show. Before we get started, as it is Christmas time, and I'm sure you're in a bit of a festive spirit right now, 11FS is taking part in the 2020 British Banking Awards, and we need your help to win. We took home 2019 Consultancy of the Year, which we were super duper proud of, a really heavy award if you guys were wondering doesn't transverse to podcast listenership does it but it's very heavy award so so it must be important uh not just that we're also taking part in the new category which is pioneer of the year so if you love what we're up to over here at 11fs head over to bit.ly forward slash 11fs 2020 and nominate us for consultancy and pioneer of the year all right let's get on with the news Welcome to this roundup episode of FinTech Insider News. Today we bring you a recap of our favourite stories that have gone by this year, the stories that stuck with us, and the ones that were just plain old silly. To go through this, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr Simon Taylor. How's it going?
1: Very good. Feeling festive? Ready for our Christmas do later?
0: Yeah, you've got a Christmas jumper on and everything. Like you're, you are looking a lot more festive than me. I was just like, I'm tired. Uh, wanna...
1: Here is a here is a hoodie that's camouflaged, but not very
0: camouflagey. I was trying to hide, but not really. <laughs> As always, we are not alone this week. We're joined by some super awesome guests, uh, and all coming back. So we must have made a reasonably good impression on most of you, I guess. Nobody's nodding, so I guess that's (laughs) not a... Oh, you're nodding out. Thank you. Finally, Emily. Thank you. All right. First up, we have Ali Patterson, who is the Editor-in-Chief at Fintech Finance. How's it going, Ali?
2: All very good. Feeling very, very festive. Do you like the uh, Star Wars out tomorrow? I am.
0: uh, I'm loving it. Are you going to go and watch the movie?
2: IMAX all sorted, can't wait
1: There yeah.
0: Nice, do you know what, I don't think I've seen the last one, that might be what I do over Christmas. Yes, make that happen I mean with a 5 year old and a 7 year old, they're not quite at Star Wars territory just yet but maybe that's just bad parenting on it's my part
2: Massive generational thing, there's a lo- load of blogs about this, asks, is Star Wars Mr. Generation.
0: Really? Wow, all the drama for Christmas Find out more in January. Alright, next up we have Emily Nicol who is the technology editor at City AM. how's it going?
3: I'm doing great, thanks. It's a bit cold outside, but glad to be in the warm now.
0: It suddenly has changed, hasn't it? And it's really
3: wet as well. I can't wear any of my favourite shoes because they're just getting... Covered in mud.
0: How <laughs> dare on, you weather? You know, exactly. <laughs> I, I missed this last week. We were recording in New York. Nobody wanted to talk about the weather at all. Like, do, I'm uh,
4: no, that's a lie. You guys have only spoke uh, about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: was just me. I tried really hard. Like they weren't biting at all. They were having not at not
4: I need your sneaker cleaning tips later, probably. All right. Well, Mine I've got
0: really you on grand. that one. All right. And last but no means least, Valentina Christensen, director of Growth and Comms at Oak North. How's it going, Val?
4: Very well. Good to be back. Nice to see you guys. You're looking very festive.
0: Well, yeah, I mean... Except David. I mean, yeah, two with guys. the weird, like,
4: camouflage jumper. Yeah. yeah
0: well, it, it's a red
1: camouflage jumper. I don't know what it's camouflage... Maybe camouflage against too much redness at Christmas. Maybe camouflage against Santas.
0: Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I can sneak up on him and get a good <laughs> gift.
1: Didn't even see that.
0: Yeah, there you go. Or fire, one of those two things. Yeah, right. sneak up on fire. Yeah. I mean, this is the insights people really tune in for, I think. <laughs> All right, let's get started with the recap. So to start us off, Emily, can you tell us why this story was so memorable to you and and give us a bit of an introduction into what it was?
3: Yeah, so this is the story about that time that RBS hid a NatWest data breach from its customers. Um, And the backstory to it was something that I remember particularly befuddled a lot of us in the room when we spoke about it. We spoke about it back in August on episode 351. Um, And the story goes, it was on the Times, um, that some highly sensitive personal data, and probably not just pretty much everything that you could consider highly highly sensitive personal data that your bank would have of more than 1,600 NatWest customers have been taken home by a former employee for a home working arrangement. And then when she was fired, she didn't really know how to give it back in a safe and secure way, is, is her argument anyway. Um, the information included things like sort codes, credit card details, direct debit history, but not just that. Also, personal information like addresses, names, dates of birth, relationship status, everything. Um she said she, the employee in question said she tried to give it back to RBS or tried to have a negotiation with them about how she could give it back. But those talks broke down with the chief executive because um, they thought that she wanted to keep some of that information. That just kind of took all the negotiations off the table. She did want to keep some of it, but she said it was because she wanted to keep some of her own legal records in case she got sued. Um but when she failed to be able to give it back to RBS, she then alerted the ICO to say, I've got this, and it's a massive data breach problem, what do I do? And it came all out in the Times, and none of us could make head or tail of it, really.
0: It's a strange one, isn't it? And, and I mean, since August, there hasn't been too much sort of follow-up on this, has there? You know, you sort of really expected... I, I feel like sometimes we hear, like, half the conversation and then the other part of it is like legal sort of wrangling and people being paid off here and there. Not that this would have happened in this case. I think I opened myself up to being sued at that point, (laughs) just so we're clear. Um, But it's an interesting one, isn't it? That there wasn't any further follow-up in, Mm. uh, you know, any sort of publication to go, and this is what happened. But I mean, it's been a funny old year for RBS more broadly, hasn't it? They've been in the papers for, you know, some good things and some bad things over the course of the year. Um, I still say this is no uh, nowhere near quite as bad as that. Was it Westpac where like an entire server fell off the back of a lorry in, in Australia? <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea that you could essentially just allow a, an employee to take home customer records seems yeah. sort of a bit weird.
3: It's almost even if you go and read the story, even the reporter who wrote it, James Hurley, he still couldn't decide who's fault who who was at fault and where they go next because the ICO was like, well, this all happened in 2009. It's before our remit. We, we don't know what to do with this information. And RBS just... I I don't know what they decided with in the end and what the employee was trying to do with her legal representation but I think maybe, they, maybe that information's still with her and we've got no idea what's happening maybe. to it
0: maybe she'll send them Christmas cards this year because she has their personal details and their address and everything all yeah. 1600 in
3: that people <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, very festive <laughs> what would you do in
1: that instance like if if like let's say for sake of argument you had a spreadsheet that you thought was innocuous and suddenly you've got all of this data like what what should you do it, it, you could imagine you find yourself in a weird place right well
3: I think I think she was dismissed because she raised concerns about the fact that she was working from home on customer data right and so she got dismissed because she was concerned about what she had and then now she's trying to give it back while still being concerned about what she has (laughs) and she can't give it back because they're concerned about what she has.
0: (laughs) It does feel very much like it's like somebody trying to give back a gift. I, I don't know why I keep bringing this back to the festive thing, like, uh, <laughs> but it's like trying to take back a gift, but you don't have the receipt, <laughs> uh, and I the get person, store
3: credit? yeah, the person mm.
0: won't admit it. You can't get store credit, but you can walk away with something today, and that was sixteen hundred records apparently. So I wonder if she still has them though, like, cause, you know, surely just like whoever it is, like the you know the security within her house is not going to be as as good as it would do anywhere else, or that I mean. Can somebody walk away with 1,600 records from Oak North? I very much doubt it.
4: I, w- I would like to think they couldn't. But, I mean, there hasn't been any follow-up since, you know, since August, right? And we are now sort of at the end of the year. Um, I did look, sort of, obviously, bearing in mind GDPR, so the number of publicly publicly disclosed breaches, um, data breaches, um, in, in the first um, half of 2019, 3,800 Wow. Yeah, or 3,800. So um, 4.1 billion is the number of records exposed. And that's a 54% increase in the number that were reported in the first six months of 2018. Wow, it's exploding, isn't it? You
3: almost Mm -hmm. wonder whether that's because we're now more aware of what a data breach is and that we have rights and we know who to report it to. And so the ICO, I think, is something like they've got six times the amount of staff in one year now because they just have so much to do. Mm. Which explains why they don't want to be the regulator of the internet whenever that happens. (laughs) But...
1: I wonder if it's a coalition of things as well. Every year, the amount of data on the internet not only doubles, but it, it, it increases almost exponentially. It's, it's doing more than Moore's Law. Uh, and then, you've, so you've got that, there is more personal data out there. You've got aging companies who are struggling with you know, legacy technology and controls and processes that worked when you had more time to react. But in a real time now kind of world, it's, it's really, really hard to do it. And then you've got consumers and, and a, a news media that are you know, really kind of much more privacy aware privacy concern than ever before, Ali?
2: Yeah, I have to admit, I um I did I did watch the Great Hack. Um and that made me suddenly very, very aware of what of what my data is. But I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. A lot more people are aware of what their data rights are and the fact that people have their data, whereas hell, even six months ago people were not even anywhere near as aware.
0: Hmm. Uh, is it is it like the horse is well and truly bolted from this one though? Because I, I kind of feel like anything that's probably uh, you know, your date of birth, your address, your name, your, you know, everything. Mother's maiden name. Yeah, all of these things that would be used as security passwords of some description for for many organizations is freely available out there now anyway. And or even with some basic level social engineering, you can kind of get to those things anyway. So, I mean, is it just uh, going into 2020? This Oh, this is starting on a really depressing note, mm-hmm. isn't it? Going into 2020, like, is it just a realization that all of our data is probably out there anyway?
3: And I think it's also a public attitude thing as well, like not people not just people knowing more about their rights, but some people are okay with having their data used by companies for advertising purposes because they recognize they get a more personalized product and mm. they kind of, not to be cynical, they buy into the message of, you know, mm. we're doing this for your own good to give you better stuff. Um, and then others are subject to the scaremongering that probably comes out of something like the great hack where they're like, oh, no, this is terrible. I don't want to give anyone my data. Um, and I mean, so they do things like go to the effort of managing all their cookies on every website which I don't think I could
4: ever be bothered to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That
0: sounds like a lot of effort, doesn't it? But, uh, I mean, I can be bought off. Like, if you buy me off with better service or, like, a product that actually benefits me, then I'm... like, free Wi-Fi
4: Mm -hmm. in an airport lounge? Totally, yeah. (laughs)
0: Anything for that Wi-Fi. What data do you need? (laughs) I need the Wi-Fi. (laughs) Yeah, exchange one of my kids. Do you know know they were at the stage there where we could absolutely inundate
2: a a business with so much data that they just won't be able to do anything with it, just paralyze them with it? Mm. Like a DDoS for, like, data? yeah. A D, DDoS. Just put so much information about yourself out there yeah. you know, that there, there's nothing they can do about it. I, I, really I mean, that's, a,
0: that's essentially my social media strategy. Yeah. <laughs> to lie, but DDoS the world it is, with your yeah. messaging. So one of those things going to hit to the wall. It it'll be fine. Whack-a-mole with
1: media. Um, I wonder if has data moved from an asset? You know, like we used to talk about data as the new oil, right? Think, thinking it as an asset so as a way you can make money into more of a liability because it's, it's, it's so risky at this point to have so much personal data that you could be the next person in the headlines and, and how much how much data on your customers do you really want and how much
0: should they own and you have access to? It's it, it's an interesting question. I mean, it, it is, but it's, it's like banks use data so badly right now. It's like they're gouging their eye out with a spork. You know what I mean? They cannot be trusted with a machete. Like, and actually, if, if actually all of the, the capability that uh, a Google or a Facebook does with data came into financial services in my metaphorical machete, mm-hmm. then, uh, then actually, they just can't handle that level of sophistication in terms of usage of data. I think to your point, they're so paranoid about holding it that they're losing the ability to figure out what to do with it, which is just weird. All right. Not leaving RBS out too much. Is this a, just an RBS summary show? No? No? Okay, we'll move on to the second story, which is the RBS Remedies Fund, uh, or as uh, it's being deemed here, the the grand finale of FinTech Alley. I, I love this one. It was just the story that just kept on giving, wasn't it? Oh, it was. It was.
2: It's it's kind of like a year long version of The Apprentice or X Factor. Completely. It was just. And I do not think at the start of the year you could have predicted who would have got them. I don't know. Did you, did you guys do predictions of the...
0: Uh, I think I failed in all of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, But particularly, yeah, the, particularly the first few polls. Do you want to run us through who got what money? All right, Pool A. Metrobank, 120 million.
2: Metro, just imagine Metrobank now. They they got the lion's share of the of the pool of money from the RBS Remedies Fund, especially with some interesting accounting reported.
0: Well and this announcement came out I think it was was it like 2 or 3 weeks before the yeah. the, the timing, uh, yeah, yeah the timing of the sort of issues and everything. So yeah, it did seem like particularly poor timing at the time, didn't it?
2: And then uh Starling with the 100 mil and uh, Clearbank and Tide with 60 mil. You may have seen a fair few adverts all over London with the, with those guys since then. Then May we had uh Nationwide Building Society Na- nationwide who at the time didn't do anything for businesses. Uh, getting fifty mil, Investec getting fifteen, and the cooperative bank getting 50 mil. Another one where a few years ago they were having some interesting IT issues, and they clear. I would, I would love to have seen what happened in the room with this. Do you think Paul B was a bit of a reaction to Paul
0: A? If you look <laughs> at the names, mm. I didn't even pick up on that. That's incredible. Maybe. Yeah, it, it's it is interesting. I think in both of those, I I. I f- Feel like this might be Anne Bowden's like Sistine Chapel. Do you know what I mean like to get a hundred million of free mm. money, having forced business banking in in Starling so much harder than anybody else? You know the the Monzo or Revolut did to then get a hundred million for free for no equity is just like the like I I cannot applaud her more for that that move. It was um, you know chess esque.
2: Absolutely, Paul C. We had. Uh... Atom ten mil, Currency Cloud ten, Iwalka ten, and Modular ten. I think they're all ones that we could have possibly predicted. Um, and then uh, a couple of uh, then in June we had uh, the the lesser end. Well, I say the lesser end. Uh, five mil for funding options, Form three, Fluidity, Codat, and Swoop Finance. Um, the thing that I find interesting about this, because I've heard about various companies that had applied for it, is those who didn't get it and who got, for one of a better word, snubbed. And that's why I would love to see all the various pictures. I almost feel it should have been a live, yeah. a live setup. Um, you know how you have those events where everyone does like the seven minute pictures on stage? They should have done that with this, because it's a genuine prize and it's almost like an awards show with a genuine award where it is it is a lot of money being at, at stake.
0: Mm. I mean, like on the presumption that post Brexit we're gonna leave the European Union and not be able
4: to go into Eurovision anymore, like this could have yeah. been the replacement,
0: really, couldn't it? You know? What do you think, Val?
4: Well I mean I guess you know obviously you say uh, of course getting a hundred million or any kind of money without having to give up equi- equity is a great thing um for any business but they do have to adhere to some quite strict uh, you know um criteria and they have to sort of meet some quite um ambitious goals to to get to get the money I think there was a piece in The Times last week on Starling Bank mm. saying that they they may break their loan p- pledge as they've only lent one percent of the one billion that they pledged to lend SMEs over the next five years and I mean you know, it can be done. Oak North has lent four billion since September twenty fifteen, so you definitely can hit the, the one billion target in that five year period. But you you're not you've got particularly get typical though,
0: are you? you <laughs> but you, you do sort of break a few moulds there with what you yeah. guys are
1: doing. And so. that's what I was gonna say. Lending's a different skill to just holding a deposit.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think, you know, it's also about the, the size of loans you do, right? I mean, they're, if you're talking about sort of um, short-term loans for sort of small businesses, then it's going to be, you know, loans of, you know, maybe a few million, but not sort of up to what we, we now can do, which is sort of 50, 60 million. Mm-hmm. So um, they definitely can hit that number. And obviously, you know, you, it's I think it's always tricky when you have a target because you don't want to sort of be like, we have to hit that target and then potentially, you know, take on riskier loans as mm-hmm. a result. So that's going to be a, a fine balance, being able to find a billion, of very high quality SME loans it's, yeah. it,
1: I wonder if every bank hit their targets were are there enough SMEs in the UK for them to all hit what their commitments are because there's all every one of them has some pretty aggressive targets which I imagine you would have to put in to 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 win the the monies but then you know how much were you confident that you'd be able to deploy that lending or be able to acquire those customers I mean it, it is an element of, of of a gamble and I think there's probably some understanding of that in the BCR but you know like not everybody can win every customer
4: well also that the thing is that you can't use this uh, money for balance sheet. So mm-hmm. you couldn't use the 100 million to do lending. It had to be for sort of activities like promotion. Yeah. And, you know, yes, it's very, yeah. you could, could spend millions of pounds on advertising, but um, if you've never had that amount of money to play with before, it's actually really hard. Really? It's really hard to think about how are we going to deploy 100 million of capital? That's, you know, on things that aren't for everyday business activities that we're currently doing, but actually for things like, Promotional activities, which before you might have had sort of a million in the kitty, um, and when you sort of hundred x that, it's um, it's quite different. I'm mm.
3: pretty sure I see a Starling Bank advert at least like five times a day, yeah. just on my phone. And then even today, coming here, walking out of mortgage Tube Station, big Starling ad. Like they're everywhere. Um, so definitely spending the money on something.
0: It's but. good to see. Um, it's good to see some of the. I mean, people like uh, Modular, people like Fluidly, people like Form Three. You know, people who are kind of in there, not just. Uh, Business-facing, but there's there's sort of capability building in there as well. So, I mean, I suspect fundamentally this will lead to a better place for SMEs because this amount of money coming in for competitive will at least make you know if you if if you if I was a a Lloyds or a Barclays or a HSBC sort of looking at these things, you at least have to match, if not more than uh, spends uh, than these these people would do. In fact, if in, in in many of these instances, I think Metro, Starling and Clearbank all are matching the investment that was being made. I yeah. think most people did in, in all of the pools, actually. Um, so, you know, SMEs are going to get a much better uh, level of service over the next couple of years, I think, for this. But we can't forget it was just the weirdest punishment for RBS ever. I completely agree with you, Ali. <laughs> Can't wait for next year's one.
3: Actually, so on that point, I remember I was speaking with some people over at Starling Bank, I won't say who, um, a few weeks ago about this and they were saying there is actually no rules written down on what happens if something like Metro Bank went under or if they had to stop giving anything to the SMEs. Like, There's no rules as to what they do with the cash they then got from the RBS Remedies Fund. Do they give it back? Does it get spread out amongst the different players? Like, Metro Bank's obviously not had the best year. A lot of his executives have gone. um, And... I guess nobody thought that far ahead. Nobody mm. thought when they were giving out the the Remedies Fund and writing the T's and C's for that, what they would do. If any, and even in the smaller players as well, what happens if any of them go under? Where does that cash go?
0: Well, that might be the plot twist for Season 2 beginning, I, I guess, Ali, but we'll uh, see what happens on that one next. Can't wait. I mean, to your point, Val, as well, it's like when people stop actually being, or being able to get anywhere near the targets that have been set out, What happens then? Like, do you think they'll, you know, the bailiffs will come knocking on the door for the 100 mil back or?
4: I mean, I, I don't know if that would happen. But as you say, I mean, it'd be interesting to see. I think it's really good for other businesses like IWalker, right? Because in that's a sector that's having a particularly difficult time at the moment. And is really coming out as a sort of beacon of hope for peer-to-peer lending, um, you know, being profitable um, and being, uh, you know, obviously having secured a significant amount of um, investment from investors, but also then um, securing this uh, or winning this grant. Um, you know, and I think it's uh, hopefully they'll be able to do, you know, do some really good things with it over the next few years and prove that, you know, there's still a future for this sector.
1: Is there something about changing how lending is done as well a little bit? Because uh, if you were to look at the market, there was there was an aggregate demand of lending, and then there was sort of GDP growing. So therefore, there would be a little bit more risk that the, the market could accept every year. But there was sort of a line in the sand below which, you know, you could lend more by having more risk appetite. Mm. And that was the old game. But actually, the technology and other things allow you to identify pockets of risk and price it differently. Yeah. How many people are thinking in that lens versus just deploying a load of marketing and trying to win the business that was already there. So there's more people fighting after less businesses.
3: It reminds me of what happened with open banking when that first started coming in. And they opened the open the implementation entity and they to try and, you know, get all the CMA nine on board and then nobody met the deadlines, they'd extend the deadline, and now the deadline's been extended again. Huh. And the OBIE is still around, they're still employing lots of people to try and get that over the line. And I think that's what's going to happen. Mm. I think twenty twenty-three is gonna come, nobody's gonna be ready, or have spent all their money and they're just gonna extend it rather than trying to think smart about how they could change the way lending is done.
0: Yeah, I think they, they seem quite soft on deadlines when they really believe that it will have a positive impact on it and then really hard on deadlines when people have just been naughty doing naughty things, haven't they? So, all right, let's move on, though. I mean, if nothing else, I think we can agree with all that money, they're going to have some really good Christmas parties, I imagine. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so next up we have that time fintech went very, very wrong. Val Uh Give us a little bit more on this one. It sounds very yeah. interesting.
4: Um, so basically, so this was a story written by Jemima Kelly, who um, is a journalist at FT's Alphaville. Um, and if you've ever read any of her stuff, she's sort of very tongue-in-cheek, um, sort of very dry sense of humor, very sarcastic. Um, and so, and they're sort of quite long, um, sort of so- sorry, short-form stories, so um, good snippets for sort of your lunch break. But this was one where she... Um, you know, she she basically took uh, the bus, her, she paid with Apple Pay, um, and she paid her ticket with Apple Pay, and then her phone ran out of battery, and she was unable to prove to the um, person who came on to check tickets that she had, in fact, paid. Um, so she contacted TFL, who told her, you know, send us, you know, uh, your bank statement, and then we'll kind of come back to you and send you a letter um, in the next seven to 10 working days. And sort of the, the number of delays that were done as a result of having to send these paper statements meant that she ended up with a fine of sort of almost 500 pounds. So... I like the story because it sort of she she goes she goes through from beginning to end, sort of getting on the on the bus. But actually, the headline is quite misleading because it says the time fintech went very very wrong. I mean, yes, fintech being, I guess, in this case, the Apple Pay. Mm. But had she been with a bank like Starling or Monzo, she would have been able to get download a statement immediately on the app and then send it to TFL and prove that she had paid, rather than having to have this you know seven to ten working day delay, which ultimately led to her um, you know missing the deadline and having to pay the five hundred pound fine. So. In some ways, it actually proves that you know fintech. If if you bank with a real fintech um, or a bank that has the ability for you to download statements instantly, then um, you know you can probably avoid uh, big fines. So it's a quite a rare one-off case, but I just thought it was um, yeah a really good use case as to why you should uh, switch to a a, a neo bank.
0: Mm. I mean, the moral of this story is uh, Christmas number one present is a uh, portable charger, ladies and gentlemen. Because, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it is a, a bizarre sort of edge case that they fell through, really, isn't it?
4: And, I mean, it reminded me a bit of, I mean, if you can remember a couple of years ago, Monzo, which was just a great PR story, and maybe maybe they, they set it up in that way, but that guy who got his... Um, I think he got his wallet stolen and then he was able to, to f- track on his phone mm. where yeah. it was being spent and sort of then went and actually confronted the uh, the person. Um, and that's a great example of sort of the use of technology being able to help you in you know, quite a, a rare case. It's not like um, the gambling blockers, which would obviously apply to a lot more people. So I just thought this was um, you know, quite a, a funny instance where had she been with um, a Monza or a Starling, she probably could have saved herself £500 fine and, and a lot less stress.
3: Mm. I love that in, in the wake of this as well, I mean, so obviously Apple would have been working on it before, but since this story, they've then launched Express Travel. So now, even if your phone dies for up to five hours, it can still be checked by a ticket machine to see whether you've checked in or not. Really? I didn't realise that was the part yeah. of the- Even if your phone powers down, there's like five hours of... Base level activity yeah, the in which it still would, works. Wow.
4: It and the story was picked up it. by like the Mail and a bunch of others. So it was, it did actually get uh, quite a bit of coverage. A couple of the red yeah, tops of, covered it.
3: A lot of people uh, were like Disgruntled Traveller yeah. tries to do this and then they thought she'd been interviewed by another journalist, but actually it was the journalist herself. It was quite funny.
1: As people who have an eye towards um, media collectively, how much do you think this is a reaction as well to fintech is awesome? Look at all the fintechs and we needed sort of the, the, the reality story to give us a bit of a reality check?
2: Oh, there's so much of that at the moment. Like there was, yeah. Apparently, Oak North is going to go bust because oh, you had that. You had one client delay or no, we, something. We
4: had we had um, two defaults, no credit losses. Apparently, that makes news when you've lent four billion pounds in four years. I mean, that's mm. sort of the business of lending, I suppose. But yes, you know, it's uh, we're coming up to Christmas, so you know, there's, they're running low on stories, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I think when I think about fintech, I don't really think of Apple Pay as being a falling out of that category. I guess I mean, it is. It is obviously a financial technology, but I don't. That was why it was quite funny the headline because it wasn't really the fintech that I was thinking of. And
1: a lot of it was TFL's process, like wanting yeah. a paper statement, right? Yeah. The, the, the fintech side of it was kind of okay.
3: And I think Jemima kind of made that clear as well. that I didn't get the sense when I read the story that she was having a problem with fintech. Actually, more of her problem was the the fact that TFL had this really roundabout way where she had to go to court and maybe try and pay a fine and whatever evidence she tried to present wasn't enough and Mm, all this sort of stuff. And then trying to get the money back for the fine was also a bit of a palaver as well.
0: I think, to your point, it is fintech, but neither of those companies in that process are a fintech, are they? So it's yeah. uh, an interesting thing. I wonder if TFL internally have gone, we want to get. We should get into fintech, we're a fintech. Oh.
1: Was, so the, we did a podcast a few weeks ago called Everything is Fintech, right? There's a lot of... Uh, Damn it,
0: we're making it worse for ourselves. Yeah, aren't we? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: yeah, but it's, it is It is almost the other way around. You look at um, Google looking to do the partnerships, you look at Apple Pay's been around for some time, but now Uber looking to do their partnerships in banking. Like anybody that has enough of a value chain where financial services can be useful, stop to consider at least financial services as part of their operating model and taking some of the tech in-house because incumbents aren't always able to provide what they need.
0: Mm. I mean your your point a second ago as well about is there a bit of a backlash to fintech? I mean do you want to sort of unpack that a little bit because it it does feel like the the headlines are becoming a little bit more I mean we we love an under like an underdog don't we so you know the fact that now um these bloody oak norths are getting too big for their boots (laughs) then uh, you know people are starting to sort of be a bit more uh... I wonder if there's an appetite uh, or
1: a reader who doesn't work in fintech who's been in the city for a long time that has been plugging away um, and probably saw the rise and fall of things like peer-to-peer and I don't say if peer-to-peer has fallen but peer-to-peer you know kind of came out as the you know that it was going to change the world Mm. and it hasn't they're getting banking licences and they're looking to raise deposits so that they can lend with a better cost of funds you know they called it right on that one. You know, is are they, you know, working towards that bias and that benefit of experience? Uh, or is it something that, you know, there is a broader consumer thing for, like, as we're moving from early majority into late majority, there are just people who are like, oh, maybe that's not for me. And, and the, the, there's a genuine audience for that kind of conversation.
0: Hmm. I, I wonder if there's like just an, it's like an old school model. Like, I think, um, bizarrely, I think if you look at a lot of the... There's been some things that older banks have been doing lately that have got amazing amounts of press. And I think it's down to old-fashioned relationships that they have rather than it being necessarily a good story. It's like somebody somewhere knows the the editor of, you know, Big Newspaper X, you know?
4: Well, it's also because the majority of people bank with the Big Five. So if you read something about... a a place where you get your money or the card that you have in your wallet every day, you're more likely probably to read it than one that you've never heard of. I think that's also... It. It's a relevance thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's just... It, it, it will apply to so many more people. Um, and because those are international brands, right? The Barclays, Lloyds, Santander's, Um But bad news sells as well. Um, and if, you know, if that's the worst thing that they could write about Oak North in four years, then I, that makes me incredibly it, proud. But what, but
1: what I love is that it totally didn't bother you.
4: No! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not bothered by it at all. <laughs> Okay,
0: moving on. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, next up. So this was a pretty busy year for for Monzo. There was a lot of different things that kind of came out, both positive and negative. Do you want to run us through these ones, Simon? Because there's a lot of different headlines in here, right?
1: Oh my goodness, uh, it was it was headline city. So of course they launched in the US. Can we, um, can we use
2: the word colonized the US? I think that was.
1: Oh, very well, if you really want to oh. annoy our US listeners, yeah, that's they how. don't like that. So uh, oh, yeah, there was a Tea Party. Let's not go there. Um, so Monzo did launch in the United States, although very early. Um, looking to challenge some of the uh, established giants over there and and other fintechs. They got a $2 billion valuation um, after raising $113 million. Um, They hit 3 million customers in the UK, which means one in 20 UK adults now bank with Monzo. Um, They had their uh, first failure close Monzo, according to The Guardian, after being criticized by uh, customers. The app bank said the premium service Monzo Plus isn't the best it could be. So Monzo Plus was like... We need to close this thing. Very public announcement that it's coming, and then they very publicly shut it down, which was which was interesting. And then, of course, that watchdog expose. um, They uh, Monzo denied that they unfairly froze customer accounts in the wake of accusations made by BBC Watchdog. And of course, Tom Blomfield was on FinTech Insider, um, sort of um, giving, letting airing some of his views
0: on it. Really, really big year um, for for Monzo on all fronts. Mm. I mean, it's been quite. I'd say quite a mixed one. They've been sort of like the, the darling of sort of fintech for for so long, I guess, mm. on like the, the retail banking space. Don't worry, we love you too. <laughs> it's okay, Val. Okay, well. But, um, you know, it's been interesting to see the sort of mixed thing. I actually, on the US thing, it's been really interesting because um, I had... Um, lunch with uh, Alan McIntyre over at Accenture last week in in New York, which sounds as fancy as hell, but we were just, it was like in a random little place in New York, so it wasn't anything too exciting. He took his Monzo card out uh, and sort of waved it around and said, what's the problem here? And it was, Monzo in the US has no contactless. And I was like, that's weird. So like they've, they've sort of gone into a market with a a less sophisticated product than they have here, but also a less sophisticated market than they have. Is it because of the, the, the
4: payments? I guess machines—they not take contactless. Is that I right?
0: paid contactless for everything while I was yeah, out I there. Think mm. They
3: do. It's probably more to do with whoever they've got to be there. I mean, so they're supported by Sutton Bank over yeah. there. So, but I, I don't know whether that would have anything to do with card processors. I don't know whether they'd use a different card mm. processor for the for the US than they do
0: here. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it was a really strange one, but I think it's it's interesting to sort of see. Um, the things that they have achieved here, whether they're replicable everywhere else. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen this with Revolut, we've seen it with N26 as well. Are they going to be able to replicate the same level of success that they had here? Was it, you know, an MPESA style thing where it was like once in a generation, once in a moment change type thing? Or can they really sort of do it again? And I I mean, I I haven't seen anything yet that suggests that it's going to be any uh, different. it's going to be a massive success over there, given everything that else that's happening. But I guess like next year is going to be super interesting to see where they think get
3: to. the recent problems that Chime has been having is going to help Monzo a lot, mm. because Chime was probably the biggest hurdle they were going to face. Because obviously when you first go to a market, your first group of people you're trying to target is those early adopters, and they will all be on Chime if they're interested in fintech. Um, so to try and overcome that and having all the problems that Chime's had, where it had that massive service outage for a whole weekend, nobody could use the bank at all. Yeah. Um, That will definitely help them out, Mm. but I also think that they probably are having a bit of a problem just trying to navigate a U.S. banking system. It's so antiquated, and the way like all the different twists and turns, and even with the help of someone like Sutton Bank, Mm. it how do you innovate something that is just that old? Yeah,
0: I mean, it's an interesting one because I think with if you look at Chime, you know, the problems that Chimers are having now are very reminiscent of the problems that people like Monzo and Revolut had. Two years ago, with GPS, so you I'm know, not
3: sure if Chimes on its own processor or not. I assume it would they, be because they've they been, been around for a Galileo. while. Galileo,
1: so Galileo went down, which was their processor. Uh, okay. um, Monzo
2: I, using Galileo as well.
1: Yeah, um, so they're sort of the GPS PPS equivalent um, over there. There are there's marquetta there's a, there's a few of them that do that, and, and similar as you say, David. When that supplier goes down, your service goes down to your customers, and this was happening with the challenger mm. banks. They've now taken most of them have taken that in-house and changed the conversation. The U.S. is an interesting one, though, as you say, David. Because uh, you know what what problems are they able to solve for which customer base? Because in the UK, the early adopter was you know urban, uh, probably worked in tech or finance, um, and Monzo came along as being you know, really solving for that. Chime may be doing that, but they've also done really well with sort of people who are struggling to make it from paycheck to paycheck. They've really gone you know that get paid early in the U.S. as you were saying on last week's show uh, on the uh, I can't remember what episode it was the the new show. Um, with John Zaoff and the guys in the us that in the uk that makes a day 's difference in the us it can make two three sometimes four days' difference that 's huge for a segment of the population. Who's that community in the U.S.? Who's that sort of early adopter? And are they already with Chime or are they with somebody else? I don't know who you guys think think it is. Is it the same as the U.K. or is it different?
3: I noticed for a lot of the U.S. digital banking launches over the last two years, one thing that's always come up is the underbanked and the unbanked. And pretty much every player has some kind of vertical which that is an area they're targeting. Um so I think that's probably one thing that Monzo is thinking about a lot is that obviously there are a lot of people in the US that have a smartphone, but probably don't have a bank account or have a bank that doesn't have as many ATMs everywhere. And it's still a very cash heavy area as well. So trying to get everybody onto card will be a, a mission in the first place.
4: And I think that's exactly it. I mean, the whole proposition will have to be quite different because I mean, I'm a Monzo and it's my prim- prim- like my prim- main current account here in the UK. And you know, with things like getting cash payments, for example, you know, then having to go to sort of those checkpoint places and put, put the money in and then pay the six pound penalty to deposit money, um, and that is something. As you say, uh, America is still somewhere that that relies quite quite heavily on on cash, um, and uh, and it's also, I mean, it's again an, a market where people care about their credit cards, so. Unless Monzo potentially looks at offering something, you know, I mean, you've got everything from the Apple credit card, Uber credit card. I mean, every, as you mentioned, all the big tech guys also have their own credit card sort of offerings. Um, and I think that's an area they'll have to at least look at, um, which is going to be quite different to the to the UK. Hmm. Mm. And,
0: it, and it's an interesting point in the cycle as well, isn't it? Like, by no means is the job done here. Um, you know, I I kind of worry a little bit because there's been quite a few uh, stories, obviously, of of various different people sort of leaving over the course of the year as well. You know, Simon Vanskalina has now moved on to Mm. do his own thing and various other players have sort of moved on. So, uh, you know, they they sort of can't lose the emphasis on the work that still has to be done
4: to deliver in the UK European market. And I think it's not just the regulatory challenges or the fact that, you know, as you said, they're at that point in their their business. I think it's also that, um, you know, you've got, I mean, seven thousand banking institutions in America. So, I mean, they, and they are. I mean, I was in Florida a couple of weeks ago, and there was like a Florida Keys bank. I mean, they are so specialized to sort of and uh, so localized. Um, it's not the same as sort of here in the UK, where you've got a system, you know, CAS, which enables you to switch, you know, from your main current account to to Monzo or, or another another bank in sort of seven days. It's it's not the sort of system that's set up. So, mm-hmm. even getting people to have it as at their main current account is going to be totally different there versus here. Yeah. And um, the infrastructure is just. Um, very very, very different.
0: Yeah, I think the 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 model is so much more akin out there to a community bank than anything. Mm. You know, to your point, there's yeah. five big banks, there's four thousand five hundred banks, and then there's nine thousand financial <laughs> financial institutes, which is just insane. Um, so, you know, being in a situation where they're building community in the way that they did here, I wonder if it's going to be more of a an interesting challenge, less to rbs or you know barclays like it was here more to tier three or community banks over there um, but hey it'll be and, interesting and to and who are out. those
1: communities and are they geographical or are they
0: a segment in some way indeed all right on that note we'll be back very shortly today customers are demanding greater value from financial services they expect more agility innovation and security than ever before Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision, to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. We are hiring. I mean, if you want to kickstart your new year with a new job, then head over to 11fs.com forward slash careers. You can find all sorts of stuff that we're up to because we're up to all sorts of stuff. Check out our vacancies at 11fs.com. All right, let's get on with the show. So before we continue, we wanted to highlight a few of the stories that were, I mean, Entertaining in some parts uh, and uh, downright bizarre in others, but um, didn't quite make the cut. So first up, we had that creative block. So when NatWest apologised for patronising, patronising, patronising—I always get that was wrong. Uh, when NatWest apologised for patronising women by patronising women, so this was the story uh, that they posted around the Mister Banker thing. Can you remember that? It was very entertaining. It was the whole um, apologizing but making it sound really, 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 really bizarre. We're not going to go into detail of it, but I think we gave this a bloody good go on the other one. Uh, and speaking of patronizing women, we had EY instructs women to dress nicely and not speak directly to male colleagues' faces as it makes them nervous, which was also entertaining, which I think you covered in the blooper reel as well, actually, Alex, which uh, we'll definitely get there. Men are like bears. Make yourself look big, <laughs> I vaguely remember saying. Um, so I and what else happened? I think lots of Libra stuff. All
1: the Libra happened. This isn't the right podcast for it. Of course, there is Blockchain Insider available on iTunes now. But my goodness, that was, i mean—that was a huge story, Emily. It was—it was kind of massive, right?
3: Yeah, and it's still ongoing, and we yeah. still don't know where it's going to end up. It's kind of quieting down now because I think after the, all the hearings, Facebook's almost taken a back seat on the project. Yeah. Um, and obviously everybody's winding down for Christmas, so the regulators are all off on their on their holidays. <laughs> um, but, but it will yeah. run and run, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, well, March 2020 March is our deadline, right, for the, the founding partners. So. Yeah,
1: it's got to get launched,
0: I <laughs> think whether it exists or not. <laughs> Libra is a massive whodunit, and it's going to turn out nobody's going to do it. <laughs> Moving on. Um, <laughs> so the next story was about British Royal Mint had produced a solid gold card, but you needed £18,750 to get one, which was mental. I think they declined my offer of road testing one of them. Is that right, Laura? They just didn't didn't respond at all. If anybody's listening from the Royal Mint, still open to giving one of those a go. Uh, And last up, we had Snoop Dogg invested in Klarna, which I think was one of my favorite stories of the year, because it was just really funny. It was a mash of two things you love, Fintech and, and Snoop Dogg. Indeed. All right, let's get on with the actual stories then. So next up, we had Bank of England finally welcomes Fintechs. So this was over on the Financial Times, The Bank of England announced their intentions to open their vaults to tech companies for the first time. I don't think that was quite literally. It wasn't their literal vaults, was it? That would be good. Lots of gold. Uh, So this was... uh, Do you know what? I think actually... The last few years of uh, Mark Carney's kind of reign in the Bank of England have just been a joy, haven't they, really? I, I feel like he, knowing that he's sort of on the way out, has become so much more uh, relaxed into the the ability to kind of say what he's really, really thinking and just be a bit more controversial, so... Um, Has the Bank of England really sort of relaxed its policies, or is this just get good uh, headline? No, there's
1: there's two material changes here for me. One is allowing payment providers to store funds overnight in interest-bearing accounts, um, and two is potentially access to the balance sheet as a result. So it's uh, sorry, two is uh, potentially access to the payment systems directly. So you used to be able to get in through a clearing bank like. ClearBank or RBS or, or Barclays um, as a payments provider. Now you could potentially go directly to the Bank of England, and have direct clearing, which which would be really really different, and not just in fast payments, but in, which was Vocalink, But you're talking about Chaps and um, and, and the other systems as well. So that's that huge. Very British, talking about Chaps. Indeed, we have a payment system called Chaps. I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have also a, uh, a checking service called Watto. <laughs> <laughs> we
1: don't really which American, is Sorry. So th- those two things are huge. No other central bank have gone that far. Um, and so to your point, Mike Carney did did uh, move the needle in Threadneedle Street.
3: And now he's going to be an M- a UN envoy for f- climate change in financial services or mm. climate finance. I can't remember which way round it is. Yeah, I think They're two was, different things. Uh, I think but, it
0: was climate finance. So yeah. was sustainability within financial services essentially mm. what he was going to take up. With a, I, I think I read something about how small his salary was. There was a dramatic pause there. I didn't mean there to be. But yeah, the salary for that new role, right? Uh, wasn't it, well, wasn't yeah, it like I, £50 pounds or something he's going to be paid for this I think new role?
3: It's a, yeah, it's almost like a voluntary role that he's decided to take on. Mm. But I mean, he probably got paid enough to retire several times over. I like That's to think that it's like
0: some sort of weird summer placement. You know, like he'll come <laughs> in, see how he does. But I know, think if, a, probably, if they like him, he likes them, they'll give him a go, you know.
3: Yeah, but I think that the role is probably indicative of his attitude. You were saying how in the last few years he's relaxed, he's moved things forward, he's become a lot more modern mm. and almost in a way... Climate Envoy is one of those things. It's a very modern approach to financial Mm. services and hopefully he'll modernise the UN with it.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see who replaces him as well, right? There's lots of uh, various different candidates kind of flying around. Um, I think
3: we're we're now down to two favourites, which is Dame Manoush Jafik and Paul Tucker. Oh, really? Um,
4: yeah, that was in the Times, um, Sunday Times, yeah. Yeah, oh. I mean, it's
3: still reported, obviously. It's not not for sure, but those are the two favourites. But, you know, always pushing for the woman, so. Mis- mm-hmm.
0: Mr. Bailey from the FCA has been ruled out as a contender, is he? Uh,
3: not ruled out, but they're kind of, he's not in the front runners anymore, According I think. the article.
4: And then, yeah, yeah.
0: So I could get better odds on a bet, is that what you're saying? Potentially. All right. Potentially. We'll start running that book. Mm-hmm. All right. Next up, we had a story. Actually, I mean, the U.S. appeared to be just buying each other, which was really, really <laughs> interesting as, as this sort of uh, course of uh, activity went on. We had various different things from TSIS and FISERV and WorldPay and all sorts of different players in this market. Um, it was all quite confusing to us Brits, so we thought we'd get our resident American to uh, talk us through this one. So we talked to Sam
5: 2019 was full of fascinating stories when it came to banking and fintech from a U.S. perspective. But for me, the big story of 2019 for fintech and banking in the U.S. was M&A. There were so many big-time acquisitions that took place this year. I mean, just think about what a year of titanic announcements it's been. I mean, it started with Fiserv acquiring First Data for $22 billion back in January. Then in March, FIS acquired WorldPay for $35 billion. In September, Global Payments completed the acquisition of my old employer, thesis for $21.5 billion. Even Jack Henry got in the mix with their acquisition of Gizio, a personal financial management tech company, this summer. And think about it, that was just the banking service providers. The year really kicked off back in February when we had that shock announcement of BB&T and SunTrust, arguably the largest bank merger since the 2008 financial crisis, valued at close to $66 billion. And now there's rumors floating around that some senior executives at Goldman Sachs have been looking at two major deals. One, acquiring the retail brokerage E-Trade, and the other involves a merger with U.S. Bank. So let's start with E-Trade. E-Trade would be huge as they have $346 billion in assets under management. That'd be a nice feather in the cap of Goldman now, as far as the merger with US bank, let's get a little perspective here. Goldman's the fifth largest US bank by asset size at 925 billion, while US banks the seventh largest at 475 billion. Combined, they'd have roughly 1.4 trillion in assets. But it would still trail Wells Fargo, who have 1.9 trillion in assets. That's how dominant the top four US banks are. Damn. Those are really big numbers. Yeah,
0: there's some big. I like. I couldn't put those on some calculators. The size of those yeah. numbers. Um, also, just love listening to Sam all talk.
1: <laughs> Doesn't he just really get yeah, like, oh, ah, Sam talk? Lot. Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, really interesting. I mean, you wonder why all of these fintechs are going to the US. <laughs> Muddy, <Money. laughs> big old um, market opportunity. Lots of it, apparently. Um, so it's. I mean, it's an interesting one. I think it's. Is this a? Is this just point in cycle from a, a you know fintech or big tech? world because, you know, FIS buying WorldPay, that's two uh, Goliaths kind of buying each other, isn't it? You know, Salesforce buying uh, another big, you know, it just feels like this is a process to go through. My point earlier on where I was talking about the amount of organizations over there, I think the tech things is one side of it. But when actually you start getting to bbNT and t and SunTrust buying each other, or not buying each other, one buying the other, then actually you start that consolidation in that market. I, I wonder if we're going to go from you know, 9,500 FIs to, you know, 4,000 through a really sort of prolonged uh, period of um, consolidation.
4: But I think it's it's what you said on the show last week when you're talking about Chime and their sort of 500 million raise and they're now valued at six and a half billion. Mm. And it was like, oh, they're probably too big to be acquired. And actually this just demonstrates that they're not mm. um, and that you could be worth, you know, um, several times more than that, and you could still be um, a potential um, acquisition target. Um, you know, it's funny, when I was sort of going back and reading the history of Wellp. WorldP- I mean, they have to write a book about this this story from beginning to end, because it is just amazing, you know, the fact that Nick was sort of forced to sell the business back in 2002, approximately 40 million was the reported number, but it was never confirmed, and then you think they've now, this merger would put them at 43 billion um, and you know his LinkedIn does say he uh, very simply built Worldpay up and then sold it for not enough money. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, this is is proof proof of that point.
0: I think uh, I think if Nick ever gets the opportunity to write that book, it would be a very good one. I
4: think
1: indeed, indeed, it's been huge year for M and A. It's also I, I wonder how much the companies that we're not mentioning here have had an impact on that. I think about Stripe. I think about Adyen. I think about Square. Have they pushed up the valuations of where payments are and forced people to consolidate to try and compete? A little bit. Um, if I'm concerned about merchant services, um, do I start looking at what my offering is and what my customer share is when there are new entrants in the market that can do it faster, better, cheaper? And when my board's meeting and the and the the kind of the big shiny consultancy comes in with their shiny PowerPoint deck, you know what does the strategy look like? Oh, maybe it's M and A. You know, maybe that's a way to to regain some market share. So I wonder how much the competition has had a, an impact.
0: Yeah, or, or even if this is just the market going back to where it was, you know, mm-hmm. banks have been built for you know, hundreds of years on doing really well and buying other things, right? It's a, mm. it's a pretty decent strategy if you can keep it going. It's just every so often the the market has a massive fit and then you stop for a bit.
1: And do they are they able to integrate these things? Because if you look at the history of the amounts of banks that have acquired and acquired and acquired and then never integrated their back-end platforms, you know, it looks great when you do the transaction. You have the bump in the share price, but you never get the operational
2: efficiencies out of the back of it. Yeah. Do you think some of these mergers are more for... Taking out the competition and really forcing um, Salesforce, for example, forcing a monopoly further.
0: Mm, I, I don't know. I, I'm. I think the the difference between why the bank side of things are doing it and the tech side of things are doing it. I think the, to to Simon's point, I think on the tech side, if you look at people like you know FiServe and First Data or WorldPay and FIS, it's it's I think strategic in terms of up and down the value chain from a technology mm. stack perspective. Um, I think from a you know big big bank buying other big bank perspective it might just be easier you know if you're talking about a multi-state uh you know regulatory system where it can be so bloody painful to like spin up a new office in another state to go to market in that just buying something might be a lot easier way of doing it definitely when you kind of unpick a lot of the stuff that um you know, the U.S. Bank and uh, Goldman Sachs kind of uh, acquisition could look like. That for me just looks like Goldman Sachs buying a ticket to to play in half the states in the U.S. from a retail and commercial banking perspective with a brand that people really know and trust, you know. What more could you want from, from a U.S. bank than being called U.S. Bank, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's very uh, very very patriotic in terms of how it's sort of set up. So so I, I kind of think it might just be very very good strategy. It's just they're playing with billions when we're playing with tens, you know. All right. And finally, we have the last story of, uh, well, I guess the year this year. And this was probably one of my favorites, actually, the CEO sneaker line. So this is K-Swiss's new line of shoes was dropped, uh, and it was called the Startup Collection. The sneakers were available in three models and specifically produced for travel versatility and made from sustainable material, which is really important when I buy shoes, right? Looking at you, Val, you've got as many shoes as I do. (laughs) Um, First impressions matter, and these sneakers are purpose-built for the hustle, the grind, and the journey of building your business and brand. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's really interesting that they've basically designed a bunch of uh, sneakers that they've aimed specifically at a CEO. I like the idea that basically you weren't allowed to buy them unless your LinkedIn profile said you're a CEO of something, you know? Um, But has anybody bought any of these shoes? Has anybody seen anybody wearing these shoes? No.
1: I've seen lots of people in Allbirds because that's like the startup shoe of choice lately. Shout out to anybody who's gone for that. Um, And then the other one is Patagonia Vests. That's Mm. what people make fun of with startups. Um, My favorite Twitter account is uh, at the moment is one called um, VC Starter Kit. Um, mm-hmm. And it says, let me know how I can be helpful is is their name on it. Um, and so th- their pinned tweet is a quoted tweet by Patrick Collinson, which says, so my working theory is that if you assemble enough enterprise software ads, an airport spontaneously form- forms around them. Um, and then they say this, but for Patagonia vests and venture funds. <laughs> like, so th- I think there is something about this um, sort of playing to the entrepreneurial mindset that's pretty fun.
3: I think there was something earlier this year where weren't some banking execs banned from wearing Patagonia vests. Were they really? Because they got too popular in the in the valley.
0: Really? Yeah. So it became like a, a uniform. I'm going to
3: need to Google that. But yes, I'm pretty <laughs> sure there was a thing where basically they were told no more wearing vests because there's too many of you wearing vests. The to,
0: power vest,
1: yeah. the Mark Bezos, uh, not Mark Bezos, Mark Jeff. Jeff Bezos, um, Patagonia <laughs>
0: vest, power look. Sort so, of yeah,
3: thing. the Bay Area uniform is a Patagonia vest and a pair of Allbirds.
0: Didn't basically. it just essentially become like a parody of itself though? In, in yeah. Like, <laughs> and what I've know, I've know, like as somebody who only buys Nike trainers, I've never heard of Allbirds. So like, what's that? It's, it's like it, a fly knit. Like a what?
3: A fly net, a Nike Flyknit. It's basically. Oh, that. okay. Yeah, yeah. I was
0: like a literal Flyknit. Uh, yeah. I was, no, no, I fly was knit. like for flies. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, Flyknit. So uh, the, 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 those okay. sneakers, it's the same. So shape like and really style sort of and, woven stuff. Yeah, the yeah. so big so thing is they're um,
1: ethically sourced and meant to be sustainable. And
3: they have a store in Covent Garden. Should you wish to check it out, I don't own a pair, by the way, but okay. I just I've seen them here. And Oak um, North
4: is based next to a uh, the end. That's the name of the shop. The end. Full stop. And it sells <laughs> lots of sneakers and yeah. there are crazy queues. And there was once we could see from our office, there was like a, a, a brawl that then happened as a result of purchasing these trainers and someone got a chair from a nearby restaurant and threw it at somebody else in the queue. I mean, Things are wow. really getting
0: started yeah. when somebody throws a chair. Yeah. yeah. I apologized a lot. Okay. Um, <laughs> I take all of it back. <laughs> I mean, the the thing that's probably happened to me over the course of this year is Nike has like fucking clocked me. Like to, uh, the, to the point uh, of like sending me a me- like a push notification for a new pair of Jordans or something that's come out but like get in my brain you know like they psyche me in like a really bad way so as opposed to what I was saying earlier on Ali about all of my data if Nike could just leave me alone for 6 months it would be really good for my bank balance
2: mm-hmm. so they just take that data and then link it in that you've said that now online
0: well i think cuz i've said it i'm going to get twice as many ads if that's uh, if that's mm-hmm. probably anything to go on but
2: uh, G- going on to the onto the story do you like that there's um I had a great little story about uh, Richard Branson's finance director. Okay. Because apparently Richard Branson always has a pair of scissors and will chop off people's ties because he doesn't like wearing people's ties. And obviously finance directors love a tie. So uh, his finance director of one of the groups uh, was wearing a, uh, a tie. He tried to go and cut it off, but it was a, a chainmail metal tie done specifically ready there to, to stop the scissors chopping it off.
0: Wow. I mean, that's going to be a HR nightmare at some point, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, like... Uh, if Richard Branson, he's probably got enough money to pay his way out of that one, but it's definitely going to get you into trouble. I won't be trying that one anytime. soon. You're so. not going to go around um,
1: cutting clothing?
0: I don't think it's a good... No. no. It's not Val, a good look. Val's shaking her head. It's not no. a good idea. All right. On that note, it wraps up this year's show. Should we go with you? Um, roundup show. Yeah, why not? Let's do that. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Ali?
2: Oh, uh, I'm at Ali Patterson on Twitter, and I promised uh, Kate Bolton I'll do a plug. You'll be able to find me in January on one of the break the cycle uh, cycles, which I think you guys are doing as, as well for mm. the, uh, break the break the cycle for mental health.
0: Yeah, I think we're getting a couple of them into the office. Actually, I haven't warned anybody yet, because they're going to be doing a lot of exercise. But um, it might be mandatory to be in meetings with me. Oh, I know. Good luck with that one. You won't need that jumper then, Simon. Damn Val, where can people find out more about you?
4: Uh, so I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, at Val Christensen. And if you want to find out more about Oak North, it's oaknorth.com. Very good. Emily. Um, I'm on Twitter at
3: Emily J. Nicole, that's N I C O L L E. And you can find all my stories and all of my team stories at cityam.com.
1: Very good. Simon. At S Y Taylor on Twitter or
0: email me, Simon at 11FS.com better, better good. As for me, you can find me over on Twitter on at David Breer. What do you think of this year's stories? Anything we missed? Let us know over on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email us on 11 fscom Have a lovely Christmas and a very happy new year. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.